All right, we're live right now on Facebook Live. Hello, people. Hello, and this is a future show that's going to come out on November. 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 Wow. I think second week in November, first week in November. Wow, that's uh, that's in a long time. So if you're watching now, you're getting a little sneak preview. Yeah, and then in November, uh, we'll put. I put up the sweets. You saw that? Yes, I did. All right, so this is, um, I think this is episode 88, right? Sounds about right. Yep. Uh, hold on, let me make sure. Let me uh, look at the archives. Because, man, we got so much shit, man, that we've done in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, we've been banging them out. and Oh, my God. So I want to get the right number Today's the here. last day of voting for December's schedule. Anybody listening, if you haven't done it yet, go to the Rock Show group page and do it. So actually, this is actually uh, episode 89. 89. The next one is 90. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah. So, so everybody, welcome to the Rock Show episode 89. And uh, we're talking about Irish punk band, Stiff Little Finger and the Undertones. What do you got for me, Mike? Okay, um, well, you know, this is a really, really interesting little subgenre of punk rock, um, what was going on in, in Ireland and everything like that. Uh, well, specifically Northern Ireland, okay? Uh, for those who maybe are too young to remember, you know, no Northern Ireland was for a very long time like a hotbed of, of uh, violence and civil war. Uh, basically, it had to do with the occupation that, England, United Kingdom had over the northern section of Ireland, the Belfast area. Um, and, you know, it was two factions. Basically, you had people that were loyal to England, wanted to keep them there. And then you had the people that wanted to break away and become part of the, the rest of Ireland, the regular part of Ireland. Yeah. Um, and and you know, some people view it as like a Catholic Protestant thing. It's not really that. It's not a religious war. Uh, in the in the true sense of the of the definition of one, it just happens to be that the people that are loyal to England tend to be Protestant, and the people that are loyal to the Irish side tend to be Catholic. But there are people on both sides that are mixed up, so it's it's not exactly that. But in the sixties, seventies, even into the eighties, I mean, it still goes on today. Uh, you know, Northern Ireland is still under the you know control of England. Though they don't have, you know, a lot of troops there and stuff like they used to, but back in the '70s, uh, in the days of, uh, of punk rock and and even a little before that, these guys could, you know, the guys from Stiff Little Fingers or the guys from the Undertones would be walking down the street going to school and they would just get searched by soldiers and you know it was just like a lot of hassle and discrimination. They treated the Irish like crap, and uh, you know this was something that punk rock was was perfect for them, okay uh the guys in uh well we're gonna talk about stiff little fingers first okay and we'll, we'll talk about this um the guys in stiff little fingers were actually in a band already called highway start and they were kind of like a covers band they did a lot of like rock and roll covers kind of like pub rock bands like dr feel good they covered and stuff like that uh it existed of jake burns on vocals and guitar uh henry Clo clooney on guitar 
Gordon Blair on bass, Brian Falloon on drums. And like I said, they were pretty much just a cover band. Now, about 1976, Henry Clooney discovered punk rock coming out of England and the United States. Uh, and he introduced the music to the band. Uh, immediately, they discovered that they, you know, they liked this, this sound. They wanted to kind of change what they were doing. Uh, Gordon Blair left immediately. He was really not interested. And he was replaced on bass by a guy named Ali McCordy, who would be with McMorty. I'm sorry, who would be with them for a very long time. Um, Jake Burns was kind of on the fence for a while. Uh, he kind of needed more convincing, but when he heard the Clash, he was convinced that punk rock was the real thing. And that's you what they see, were do. Did you see that crazy shit? How they negotiated the the the, the record album that told the people how much you gave the class we won sixty thousand dollars do you see that whole that thing? was that was that was the undertones oh that was the undertones that was the undertones yeah yeah I watched both documentary and it was like I was so like but they were pretty much almost like mirror of each other these two bands well well the thing with the the undertones and stiff little fingers they were kind of rivals in a way because yeah basically the the content of what they sung about was the rivalry the undertones were from Derry. And we'll talk about that in a little while. Yeah. But uh, the uh, Stiff Little Fingers were from pretty much a Belfast area. <clears throat> they had decided, Stiff Little Fingers, to be political. Oh, yeah. I think that was because Jake Burns was very influenced by the Clash. Yeah. Very political. The Undertones were not. They really had very few songs about what was going on in Northern Ireland. Uh, what was the, the technical term for what was going on there was called the Troubles people referred to it as the troubles so they didn't sing about the troubles they sang about you know teenage bullshit and you know boy girl stuff and things like that uh they were very ramones influenced in that way and we'll, we will get into that later uh, but the, the, they were criticized they criticized each other basically because stiff little fingers would say you guys don't know what's going on and and you're not singing about it and then the undertones would say back well we live it every day, man, just like you. We just don't want to sing about it. What do you, you know, what do you think? Like singing about it is really going to change 400 years of oppression that the, the English have put on the Irish? Yeah. You know, so it's two different ways of looking at it, okay? But um, once Stiff Little Fingers got into punk rock and decided to go in that direction, there was no turning back. No, that's um, it. Yeah, I mean, they, they decided that the, the name Highway Star wasn't a great name. Okay, for a punk band. No, that's and they a terrible said, name. Yeah, they said, let's change it to uh, Stiff Little Fingers, which is the title of a song by the band, The Vibrators. So it's, yeah. uh, that was in 1977. They made that switch. Now, Jake Burns had been in contact with a journalist named Colin McClellan. And he was, you know, in contact with him, um, talking about the band and what they were about and everything. And he invited them down to a gig at the Glenmachan Hotel in Belfast. And it was there that they met McClellan and also a friend of his named Gordon Ogilvie. Now, Ogilvie suggested that they start writing songs about their experiences during the Troubles. He was the yeah. guy that told them that they should be political. And uh, they agreed and they thought it was a good idea. And McClellan arranged to get the band a recording, some recording time at a local radio station to record a single. Now, the guys in the band had no idea you could do this, okay? But they, they, it never even occurred to them you could go down to a radio station and book some time. So they did that, and they recorded the classic song, Suspect Device, 
okay, which is a suspect device is a bomb. Yeah. Okay. And what they did was they packaged this single in, in the form of a cassette and the cover of it looked like a bomb. Yeah. Like, to them. like a, like a suspect device. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, they actually sent it to various record companies and then one company in particular phoned them back and said, Listen, we need another copy because we we thought it was a real bomb and we threw water on it. They threw water. On it. Yeah, they, actually, they put it underwater. They put yeah, it in yeah, a bucket they of water. It, they threw it underwater. And it, so they asked for another copy. But um, now one copy was sent to the UK DJ, John Peel, and he played it repeatedly, which yeah. led to a distribution deal through the Rough Trade label. Okay. Rough Trade was was interested in, in putting out the signal. They... Uh, Rough Trade was like a distribution company. They didn't record. They just would put everything out for you. So Stiff Little Fingers had started their own label. Kind yeah. of. It was called Rigid Digits. Yeah, Rigid and Digits. And they pressed 30,000 copies of the single for Suspect Device. And it would be distributed through Rough Trade. And it was a hit. Okay, a lot of, a lot of people bought it. Uh, you want to hear something funny? John Peel, John Peel made that song so much. That the, the, the one of the guys in the band say, "Stop playing the fucking album because yeah, we we can't keep us. up with the demand." You're exactly, exactly. He loved it so much, and you know, John Peel is a is a guy that comes up time and time again. We're going to talk about him with the yeah. tones as well. Yeah, um, we are going to do a show on him. And I spoke to Ron Granger yesterday. He wants to do that show with us. He was a big fan when he was a kid, and he wants to do the show. So I think we'll we'll get into that after the new year. He was a great guest on Ron he was. Ranger. Fantastic. And he might be listening right now. So if you're listening, you're definitely going to be on that show, Ron. Yeah. Um, now, like I said, they started their own label and, and they put out 30,000 copies of that. And Mike, can you move yeah. your uh, phone a little bit? Because I only see in your head. Uh, there. All uh, right. I, think, I think it slipped. Okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> now, they immediately pressed the second single for the song Alternative Ulster. Another uh, good song. Yeah, very great. Good song. Um, it, it was meant to be given away in a fanzine. Uh, they actually did sell copies, though. Um, but uh, that was what is a well. fanzine, like a fan magazine? And yeah, the... yeah, it was about the band. It was about the scene in Ulster. It was political. You know, was, Ulster was another city where there was just a lot of shit going on. Yeah. You know, now in the first half of 1978, they ended up signing a contract with Island Records. Uh, but they had an album's worth of material and they were ready to go in the studio and Island just backed out. Uh, they didn't really give an explanation. They just backed out of the deal and kind of left them high and dry. Yeah. Now, immediately they went on tour in the second half of 1978 with the Tom Robinson band. They were very friendly with them and uh, Tom Robinson was riding high on a hit called 2468 Motor Motorway. Um, and he, that was a big hit for him. And, uh, he took stiff little fingers on tour. So they toured all over the UK with the Tom Robinson band. And they got a lot of exposure because of that. By 1979, they would release their album called inflammable material on their own label, rigid digits. It got to number 14 in the UK on the you album know, charts. That's pretty impressive for guys that release it themselves. It, it was the level. first time that. 
I mean, they ended up selling 100,000 copies. That's a and lot. It, it was the very first time in, in UK history that an independent label charted like that, okay, to chart that high, all right? Yeah. So they decided to relocate to London, thinking it would they could make that their home base. But it led to the, to the departure of Brian Falloon on drums and Colin McClellan and Gordon Ogilvie, who were sort of co-managing them, also had to back out when they moved to London. So they brought in drummer Jim Riley, and they recorded the new single for the song Gotta Get Away. And at that point, the band also got on the Rock Against Racism tour in 1979. That was a big tour that went around England. Uh, a lot of bands were on that. Now, later in 79, Rigid Digits would be signed over to Chrysalis Records. So they would drop their label, get rid of their label, yeah. sign them over to Chrysalis, and be on their label. And in March 1980, the second album called Nobody's Hero would come out. And this release would get them some media attention right away. As, I mean, any attention is good, but it was actually a little, a little bit negative. Yeah. What happened was they were invited on top of the pops to perform a couple of songs, one being At the Edge, okay, off that new album. Uh, great song. And, you know, being on top of the pops, they, they knew that they were just lip syncing. Okay, they weren't really playing. Yeah. So it, it's actually a, a notorious moment on the show. You could see it on YouTube. The clip is there of them doing it. They're like not even lip syncing. They're like barely playing. They're like rolling their eyes and making faces. At one point, Jake Burns just starts laughing in the middle of the song. <laughs> when the song is playing, they're supposed to be singing. That was a total uproar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, they were clowning around, basically. And they made no attempt to make it look real. So they actually were, uh, they were actually asked to, you know, they told to never be on again. Okay, they could never be on again. Now, 1981 would see them release a third album called Go For It. And it would be their last with drummer Jim Riley. Um, this was a different album for Stiff Little Fingers. They kind of changed the themes of some of their songwriting. Uh, they didn't just write about what was going on in Northern Ireland and stuff like that. They started writing about things like domestic abuse. Uh, there was a song called Hits and Misses that kind of touched on that. Yeah. Uh, they wrote about football hooliganism with a track called Back to the Front. Yeah. Uh, they, they wouldn't entirely abandon old song subjects. Uh, there was a track called Kicking Up a Racket, which was about the troubles when they were teenagers. Um, now, one year earlier in 1980, they actually released a live album called Hanks. And Chrysalis had intended it to be just for the American market. Okay. They hadn't played America yet. Uh, but Chrysalis wanted to introduce the States to the band with a live album, which is kind of an interesting idea. And because uh, they really did have a, a good live show. Um, but what would happen is if you did that, that meant that the UK fans and the Irish fans would have to pay an import price on the album. Yeah. So what they did was they agreed to put it out in America, but if it was going to be released in Europe or specifically, I think England and Ireland, they put it in the cutout bin and they sold it for half price. Okay. Okay. So it really, it was cool for, for the fans over there. They didn't have to pay the expensive import price. Yeah. Um, now by 1981, the band did a short seven-show tour of the States where they were very well received, okay? 82 came, 
And they did a four-song EP called One Pound, Ten Shillings or Less. And also a fourth full album called Now Then. They had brought on Dolphin Taylor from the Tom Robinson band, because I believe that band had broken up. And he came on as a drummer because Jim Riley had left. Now, I'm sorry, Now Then did terribly commercially bombed. Wow. And it kind of led to the band breaking up. Uh, quickly, things fell apart for them. Uh, Jake Burns said they could never make a better album than this. And it, it, you know, it didn't sell. And there was a lot of arguments in the band, a lot of things that ended up in fistfights. They were young, okay? So there was probably a lot of egos and shit going on. But the band imploded, all right, and broke up. That was 1983. Four years later, they would reform. And, uh, you know, people were criticizing them, saying no one's going to come see you. But they went on a very successful short German tour. And they decided to keep that reunion permanent and, and keep the band together. They would tour off and on for the next four years until 1981, um, I'm sorry, 1991, when they decided to record a new studio album. Uh, Bassist Al McMorty would leave. Okay, he had been with them for 14 years. He would leave. And he would be replaced by ex-Jam member Bruce Foxton. Remember Bruce Foxton? Yeah, yeah Bruce Foxton. Yeah, right. very good. Now they, they, they recorded the album Flags and Emblems. And in the UK, they released a single from this album right off the bat, and it got banned. Okay, it was a song called Beirut Moon, and it got banned because it dealt with the subject of how the UK really didn't do anything to get journalist John McCarthy out of Lebanon, who was being held hostage. Yeah. That's what it was about. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the album did okay. All right, it wasn't a big hit, but the single bombed because it got banned, basically. But they kept yeah. going. In 93, Henry Clooney, guitarist, was asked to leave the band over some differences. And Jake Burns, Bruce Foxton, and Dolphin Taylor would carry on then as a three-piece. In 94, they released the album Get a Life in the UK only. And they would eventually release it in the States two years later in 1996, and go on a very successful club tour. I saw them on that tour. Oh, yeah? 96, yeah. Uh, they played Irving Plaza. I, there might have been one other show. I'm trying to remember, because I know I saw them like two or three times, and it was once, it was twice on one tour. I think it was that, that year. Um, in the end of 96, Dolphin Taylor left to be replaced by Steve Grantley on drums. And he had played with Jake Burns on a side project Jake had uh, called Jake Burns and the Big Wheel in the late 80s. Now, wow. this tri- yeah, I mean, he was, uh, Jake Burns was, was keeping it going, whether he had a side project or yeah. six little fingers. He's always out there. Uh, this trio would then continue on through the recording of the Tinderbox album in 97, and then they would add a second guitar player again. They would be a four-piece again, uh, a guy named Ian McCallum for the 1999 LP Hope Street. Yep. Now, this four-piece would also record 2003's guitar and drum. So they're pretty prolific. They're, they're putting stuff out constantly. Yeah, but uh, they will break up and come back, break yeah, up, come yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys who just have commitment, maybe kids. Guys, or guys they just would probably, yeah. go a little bit yeah. because they had other commitments. And they were getting older. But it was okay. also always the same guy. It wasn't like... Jake. Like they would just, yeah, they'll come yeah. back and... Yeah. Yeah, Jake was, was the consistent one. 
Uh, June 18th, I'm sorry, January 18th, 2006, Bruce Foxton left the band. And uh, he ended up getting replaced by original bassist Ali McMorty at the enjoyment of many fans. Diehard fans liked him. Yeah. Uh, the message boards on their website was just like inundated with, with people writing them saying, you know, keep him in the band. It's great that he's back. Now, he agreed to stay on, but he said that he'd have to occasionally be replaced because he had a lot of other commitments and stuff like that. So uh, that's how they would go on. Occasionally, they would get replacements for him, but he was back in the band officially. Yep. In, in spring of 2006, they announced Ian McCallum would not be able to tour because he had some health problems. So they replaced him with uh, ex-Naked Raygun bassist, uh, guitarist uh, John Haggerty. Okay? And McCallum would eventually come back. All right? He would tour with them, and he's been with them ever since. In March of 2007, Burns announced a new album. This is very interesting. Uh, it, it actually took them about six years to get it done. Uh, it would not get completed for about six or seven years because they didn't have the money, basically, to, to make the album. And uh, the band would play, be playing these live songs, but they wanted to make an album and they just they couldn't get it done. So on October 16th, 2013, they signed up with a project called Pledge Music. And they, it was really designed just to raise money to record yeah. the album. And the project, once it got online and everyone heard about it, it, it they got the money they needed in five yeah, hours. That, yeah, five hours. That's pretty good. That's pretty amazing. Not only that, uh, the album came out uh, March 2014, and it was their first number one album. Wow. Okay. In the BBC rock album charts. So, you know, they went on a successful U.S. tour and, you know, they've been uh, that's their, their most recent album. Um, you know, with the pandemic, I believe they had shows canceled in 2020. Uh, same with the undertones. I believe that, um, you know, they will be coming back as well. But uh, Stiff Little Fingers is one of these bands that everybody should see once. They're, they're a great live act. Uh, they've played like Gramercy Theater a couple of times over the years. Yeah. Over on 23rd Street. I've caught them there. But uh, I'd like to see them. I haven't seen them in a while. They definitely, when they come around again, I might go. I know the Undertones definitely play uh, Urban Plaza. They did. They play Gramercy. Uh, Gramercy, yeah. I think that show got canceled because of the pandemic. It was supposed to be. supposed yeah. to be in like May or something like that. It got canceled. Now, talking about the Undertones, okay, now... Despite the backdrop of the troubles that was going on, they lived in Derry, okay, a little different area than Belfast, a little more rural. Um, but the majority of undertone songs have nothing to do with politics. Uh, yeah, that is that what I was mentioning before. Um, they, they, their songs are about like adolescent stuff, teenage angst, having heartbreak, a, having a good time. Right, having a good time. And uh, they had a lot in common with the Ramones in that aspect. Yeah. The Ramones wrote about songs like that. Uh, yeah. Instead of writing about how your life kind of sucks and you don't have no money or you got problems or politics, uh, they, they took the opposite way. They said, what are we going to sing about it for? You know, we got to live it every day. Yeah. So, and, and, and I get that. And I get that. Um, I think when a band... In my opinion, this is my opinion, and, I, and I, it's not a shot at the Clash or single or stiff little fingers. Um, I think when a band is too political, 
they just get too preachy. Yeah. And, 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 and then you alienate certain people because now you're alienating fans that might like you but don't really give a shit about your politics. So it's always like a catch-22 when you start going down that road. I always then, feel like, uh, like Johnny Ramone had said something about that one time. He had said, you know, rock and roll should either be apolitical, meaning nothing to do with politics, or it should be somewhat patriotic. And he was talking about the United States. Yeah. But, you know, because he hated like hippies and all that shit, you know? You want to hear something funny? So that documentary you sent me was pretty, pretty good. Which one? Those, the uh, undertone one. It was yeah. damn good with uh, the interview in the band, how they got the album. And I'll tell you, I, I was laughing about how this guy, this is the guy that was caught up. Oh, you gave the class. Fifty thousand, yeah. we deserve it. It's like yeah. holy shit, who the yeah, fuck yeah. are these we'll, guys? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that because when they got signed to Sire, that's what they what they did, and they um, didn't even know what the fuck they were doing either. No, they, no. Like, <laughs> and, and, and the thing was, was Sire didn't even have the Clash on their label, but they were using yeah. it as an example, being like, "Oh, the Clash got this much, we should get that much." I and, know, you know. And they they even had to fight for like they really they just they, nobody wanted to be the lead singer also which was another funny thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, same with uh, that was with Stiff Little Fingers actually. Uh, yeah, Jake, Jake Burns kind of ended up being the lead yeah. singer at like by he, default because yeah because he said you know nobody would go up to the mic. Nobody would go up to the mic. So he ended up being the guy. It could have been any of them really. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so let's let's talk about the second band, the Undertones. All right. Okay? Now they formed in 1974 when the five members, fronted by singer Fiergal Sharkey, would practice at each member's houses or sometimes in the shed of a neighbor that they knew. All yeah. right. The band had no name at that point, and they were like that for a couple of years. Um, they were all in their early teens, very young. And their influences were like the Beatles and the Small Faces. So by February of 76, the band still was unnamed. They started playing gigs out, okay? And it was John O'Neill on rhythm guitar, Damian O'Neill, his brother, on lead guitar, Mickey Bradley on bass, Billy Doherty on drums, and then they had Friedel Sharkey, the singers, okay? Yep. Uh, they played schools, parish halls, uh, Boy Scout locations. Sharky was a was a Boy Scout leader, okay. And after several gigs, Sharky came up with the name the Hot Rods, and yeah. then he also came up with another name they went by called Little Feet. But there's actually an American band called that, okay, from the early seventies. So yeah. how he didn't know that, I don't know. But later that year, uh, drummer Billy Doherty came up with the name The Undertones, and it was something that he saw in a history textbook, the, the word, okay? And the band all agreed, yeah, that's, that's a cool name. So they went with that. In 76, the band was introduced to punk rock and specifically the Ramones, which kind of became their major influence. Uh, Fiergal Sharkey was working as a TV repairman at that point, and he was also a delivery guy. He had a van, which was great because he could use that van to you know, shuttle them back and forth to gigs with their equipment and all that. Mainly they were playing a, a bar called the Casbah. Uh, yeah, they talk about the Casbah in the documentary. Right, it was like their main main place. Uh, through most of 77, they played there. 
and they were getting like 30 pounds per gig, which was a, a decent amount of money for a bunch of ki kids at the time, yeah. you know? So by mid-77, the concerts by the Undertones had already included the song Teenage Kicks. They had That's written a great that, song. Yeah, great an, song. One of the greatest songs of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it was written by guitarist John O'Neill. The song was very popular at live gigs right off the bat. And because of it, the band started to play some places outside of Derry for the first time. And uh, they would play around Northern Ireland. Uh, there was a punk rock band from Dublin called the Radiators from Space. Yeah. And they used to play with them a lot, opening for them. Uh, so that was like a, a support that they did a lot with them. Now, in March of 78, they went to record a demo at the Maggie University in Derry. Okay. And they sent copies of uh, Teenage Kicks to various record labels and also to UK DJ John Peel. Okay. Yeah. John Peel once again comes into play. Uh, Peel wrote them back after hearing the, the single uh, demo, I should say. And he loved what he heard and he, he offered to pay for a recording session in Belfast. So on June 15th, 1978, the band recorded a four-song EP called Teenage Kicks on a budget of only 200 pounds. Yeah. Okay? It's not a lot of money. And nah. it was recorded at the Wizard Studios in Belfast, and it came out on the Good Vibrations record label. Yep. Uh, Teenage Kicks became a huge hit thanks to John Peel. He, he played it constantly on his, on his show. Uh, in fact, I think, I think the undertones were the ones that said, stop playing it. Yeah. Not, not, not stiff little fingers. Actually, I think it was the undertones and, uh, that yeah, said, stop playing our song. Cause it just, was sending so many. Yeah. Either way, these bands, that guy, John Peel's pretty much yeah. made the career. Yeah. I mean, if you were on the John Peel show, uh, you, you, you were getting, you were, you were going to have success because everybody listened to it and they trusted his opinions. And, when he was big on something, everybody went out and bought it. So he actually, over the years, uh, he championed the undertones for many, many years. And he said that his all-time favorite song was Teenage Kicks. Okay? And he said that, he, he said it when he was alive. He said, when I die, I want that song played at my funeral. And I wanted lyrics of it put on my tombstone. Wow. And that's what happened. In 2004, Peel passed away. Uh, the song Teenage Kicks was played at his funeral. And um, the, the, the lyric, teenage, uh, teenage Kicks So Hard to Beat, okay? Because it goes like, Teenage Kicks So Hard to Beat Every Time You Walk Down the Street. So it's Teenage Kicks So Hard to Beat is, is on his headstone. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Now, Seymour Stein who was the president of Sire Records, was happened to be in London on some business. And he was listening to John Peel's show on BBC Radio 1 in the car. And he was with his assistant. Yeah. And he... Stopped the car. Heard, yeah, he heard, he heard it. He loved it right away. He said, stop the car. I want to hear this. And, you know, he loved... And, and the thing is, Peel played it like three times in a row. You know, yeah. He'd, play it like, he'd just play it like three or four times in a row. And... He asked his rep, uh, Stein asked his London representative named Paul McNally to go to Derry, find the undertones, and sign them. Okay. And when he got there, they happened to have a gig lined up 
at the Casbah. And it turned out it would be their last ever gig because the next day they were signed to Sire Records. Okay. Now, by October 2nd of that year, the, the deal was finalized. And they ended up getting a $10,000 advance on a five-year contract. And that goes back to what you were saying before. They, you know, Sire offered them less. And they held off and they said, no, 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 no. The Clash got... 10,000 pounds, for instance. We were yeah. 10,000, all right? So, yeah. And supposedly, Seymour Stein was like, what the fuck, you know? But but they, he gave in, and he gave them what they wanted. Uh, what Sire got in return was the rights to the Teenage Kicks EP, which they re-released, and about two weeks later, they put that out. Now, on October 26th, the undertones were on top of the pops. John Peel got them on. Uh, they also recorded again for Peel. Okay, uh, on his show specifically. And the single for Teenage Kicks peaked at number 31 in the UK by November. And you could thank John Peel for that. Yeah, definitely. Through through the end of the year, they toured a lot. Okay, Uh, they were touring the UK like crazy. They went on tour with the Rizillos, who were an Australian band, and a couple other bands. Now, in addition, when they went back to Ireland, they were now headlining in bigger places, in Belfast and Derry. Uh, They also had recorded the second single called Get Over You. And in January of 79, they went into the Eden Studios in West London. Uh, They were going to record their self-titled debut album there, just called The Undertones. Uh, They were using producer Roger Bakirian, and uh, he had also worked with them. They met him when they did the single for Get Over You, okay? Almost all of the material for the Undertones album was stuff that they had performed live already. So they were very familiar with it. They had performed these songs at the Casbah yeah. and other places for a long time. So this resulted in a record recorded in less than four weeks. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty fast, yeah. Yeah. Now, the Get Over You single came out in February uh, of 79, and the self-titled album would come out in May. And again, most of the songs were about adolescent dreams and teen angst. They didn't really talk about the Northern Ireland issues. Singles for Jimmy Jimmy, another great yep. song. And Here Comes the Summer. And one. one of my personal favorites, uh, You've Got My Number, Why Don't You Use It? Yeah. <laughs> they got released between April and October. Each were loved by the critics, okay, critically acclaimed. And in September of 79, they went on tour with The Clash. Which is very shows. funny. Yeah. yeah, they went on tour with The Clash for eight shows in the United States, uh, including the Palladium show here in New York on 14th Street. Interesting enough, just as a side note, um, after that show that they did at the Palladium, they went on uh, the WPIX radio station. It was like 101.9, I think, back in the day. And yeah. uh, 101.3, something like that. And um, you could actually hear this. There's a recording of it on YouTube uh, of the whole show. And um, they get interviewed and everything. And it was like right that night, that, you know, that day when they were there. So it was pretty cool. Um, now, but they were, the talk, co- they were talking about going to the airport and being the United States. It was like, what the hell? We pretty never really left they were, that Yeah, they never been anywhere. The farthest yeah. they had ever been was England. Yeah. Okay. And they were just a bunch of country kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, 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 they really were almost like innocent and naive in a lot of ways. They had girlfriends, yeah. you know, girlfriends back home that they were 
loyal to and you know they 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 were becoming <laughs> rock stars but they kept themselves grounded and yeah. by going by going to new york city i mean they were huge ramones fans oh so yeah it was it was a big thing now after the clash tour in america the band began recording songs for a second album which would be called hypnotized yep uh they recorded this album at the uh, wizard lord studios in the netherlands starting in december and 10 songs were recorded and then the band took a christmas break and they went back to Derry to see their families and girlfriends and stuff and uh three more songs got written in that period a song called tear proof more songs about chocolate and girls i like that song <laughs> and a song called wednesday week um those were all written in the christmas break that they took off yeah. um in january of 80 they finished hypnotized at the eden studios in london and after completing that they went on to a two-week tour of ireland and then they toured the continental europe where they had never been before okay uh the regular continent of europe and that was uh for the first time in march okay um also that month their their sixth single my perfect cousin would come out and that was written by damien o'neill and mickey bradley all right and that got to number nine that would be their highest charting single in the uk yeah that could be to me i think it's like maybe their best song after teenage kids yeah my perfect cousin. Okay. yeah yeah i mean i love the video for it uh and in the undertones they actually went back to the building the house in, in Derry, where they recorded that did you notice that yeah because one of them was saying like oh that's the old gate and everything yeah and that that's where they shot that video for my perfect yeah cousin. um in april hypnotized would be released and it shot to number six and it stayed in the top 10 for about a month. As soon as Hypnotize was released, the undertones toured the US a second time, but this time they were headlining. And Wednesday Week would be released as a single in July, and it would get to number one, staying in the UK, uh, top 10, top 40, I'm sorry, for seven weeks. That's okay. impressive. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, between September um yeah right between september and december they performed two further tours of europe and the uk 1980 was like a huge year for them okay and but it was also the beginning of some problems because they were really kind of dissatisfied with sire they felt that sire wasn't doing enough to promote them especially yeah. in this in the states uh, I kind of agree, and Sire's been criticized with that for a lot of bands, especially around that period. I think they didn't know what to do with some of these punk bands as yeah. as the music was kind of changing into new wave. Yeah, okay, I don't think like they knew 80. how to promote them. They didn't no, know how to promote them or get did. them out there or put them in the charts because the sound was the definitely Ramones, changing. The Ramones suffered from that, okay? Yeah. Uh, End of the century in 1980 should have been bigger. Okay, the one produced by Phil Spector, but they didn't promote it. Like yeah, no. And then and the subsequent albums, they didn't either. The thing with the Ramones is they didn't leave them until like 1993. Okay, they didn't leave that label. So they stayed with them. They were very loyal for a long time, which I think 
probably hurt them. They probably should have jumped ship. Yeah. But the, the undertones were feeling the same way. They were feeling dissatisfied that they hadn't broken through in the States. And they jumped. Yeah, well, they did. But yeah. what happened was they had a manager named Andy Ferguson, and he got them out of that Sire deal. Okay, now not only did he do that, he got their rights to their music. Which you know, that's huge. Re return to the band, yeah. which doesn't always happen when you leave a label. And uh, he got them signed to EMI in March of 81. Now, in January of 81, they began recording their third album called Positive Touch. Yeah. Uh, again, they went to the Wizard Studios and also they had producer Roger Bakirian in tow again. And uh, they recorded eight songs in five days. These guys worked pretty fast and then headed back to Derry for a break. Now, later in the month, they would return to the Netherlands to finish up. All right. The theme on this album was a change. They actually did write a couple of songs that you could call political. Uh, yeah. A, tr a track called Crisis of Mind. Uh, a track called You're Welcome. And then there was a single called It's Going to Happen. All touched on what was going on. It's Going to Happen kind of talks about hunger strikes that were yeah. happening in, in Northern Ireland at that point. People in prison doing hunger yeah. strikes and stuff like that. Um, the band added brass and saxophones in their sound now. Okay, uh, Some musical influences that they were drawing from were contemporary acts like uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners and a band called Orange Juice at the time that was big. Yeah. Uh, bass player Bradley was on the record saying at that point it was like their best album, he felt. Yeah. And everything was kind of a natural progression. Now in April, they went on well, their that pop... They were almost getting out of that punk vibe in a they way. Were. They were. Changing. They were. Yeah. They were. Uh, I, I actually don't care for most of this album. Okay. And most of what they did after this. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about the differences, but they, they kind of went in a, in, a, in a different direction. Now, They're very different. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in April, they went on the Positive Touch tour. They played 36 gigs in the UK in less than two months. That's a so lot. That's, that's like a gig every other day. Yeah. Right? So that's a lot. Now, in May, the Positive Touch album came out. And even though the singles released didn't really do well commercially, the album still got to number 17. So they were still very popular. Yeah. Uh, it got to 17 and stayed in the top 40 for four weeks. So in September of 81 through October, they toured Europe again, uh, doing 19 shows in six different countries. Okay, and uh, after this tour and through 1982, the band kind of went on a hiatus. All right, they were getting burned out. All right, uh, they did five shows just in '82. All right, two of them in the UK and three in the States. But they concentrated on a new album that they wanted to work on. Uh, they wanted to take a little break from the touring because they were getting burnt out. They did release two singles though during that time. A track called Beautiful Friend and a track called The Love Parade both didn't chart. Okay. But in March of 83, they released their fourth album called The Sin of Pride. And this album would be uh, another evolvement of their sound. What yeah. they were listening to at that point was a lot of like Motown and soul music from the 60s. And you could hear it. Uh, there was a track called uh, Got to Have You Back. That's really, to me, like the only 
song I like on that album. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a good song, but it's it's different. I mean, there's a lot of horns but, on it, saxophones. Uh, it's a soul. It's a it's a '60s soul song. Yeah. Yep. You know yep. what? It, you know what's going on? They were getting older. They were just growing up, and they wanted the the music yeah. involved. They were involved in you know. To yeah. The point. I mean, they were they were going in different directions musically, even within even, the band. Even within the band, yeah, they all yeah. wanted to change, you know. Yeah, pretty and, much, and it would be the end of them, unfortunately. Yeah. But, but you know, at that point, it, I think it was still a creative process. Yeah, um, the album was a departure from uh, Roger Bakerian. They didn't bring him in to produce. They brought in a guy named Mike Hedges. Yeah. Uh, now, now, Fearful Sharky is on the record saying that that's his favorite album. Okay, he thinks it's the best one they ever made. And it was the one that he worked hardest on to make. Uh, the critics loved it, but the fans didn't. It only yeah. went to number 43 in the UK. Uh, the two singles, Got to Have You Back and Chain of Love, didn't do anything, unfortunately. Yeah, now, they, were, they were more like um, soul, soul music almost, like. Right, they were they, it was pretty different at this Backup point. Backup singers, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of brass, saxophone. Yeah, it was a totally like different band. To yeah, I mean, it really, I mean, it was the same guys, but just a different sound. They had evolved, I guess that you could say. Um, they toured heavily <sighs> starting in April of '83 to promote the album, The Sin of Pride. EMI was putting a lot of pressure on them because they weren't happy that you know they had signed them and and really didn't make any money. Uh, in addition, band tensions were heavy. Okay, uh, but that was think, still a good live band to see. Oh yeah, still doing good. They were setting out gigs, and it isn't like it isn't like they didn't do their old songs anymore. They did. No, yeah. Um, there's a, on YouTube. I was watching it last night. There's a concert from uh, Rockplast, uh, which I believe is Germany. Um, I think it's now that was '83. I think it's '82, and you could see this, and you could see the change in their sound. Okay. Uh, Fiegel Sharky could sing. Yeah. He had a very unique voice. When they were doing their first two albums, which was like punk, they, they you know, you heard it. You could tell this guy could sing, but he, he wasn't really singing. But yeah. by the, the time they came out with The Sin of Pride, he was actually belting out some songs. He had a good voice. Okay. Very unique. A lot of like vibrato in his voice that like that, like kind of like. If you hear it, you know what I'm saying. Like that kind yeah. of like very unique sound. Um, and, you know, they toured heavily behind this album, but it really wasn't selling. Nah. Um, at this point, they were, you know, they were very disenchanted. Uh, Sharky and John O'Neill, their relationship kind of collapsed. They didn't get along anymore. Um, Sharky that announced in May that he was going to leave the band. And they actually had, you know, if you watch the documentary, they were kind of relieved. Yeah. Because he was like not happy. They were all not happy. Yeah. Right? And, and they figured, you know, we'll break up the band and go in a go our own separate ways. So they had some gigs lined up contractually that they had to do through July. So July 17th, they played their last gig together. And that was at the Punchestown race course in the County Kildare section of Ireland. That was their very last show. Now, Sharky would have a short but successful solo career in the mid-80s. Yeah. Uh, 
you know what's funny is is I looked up some of his solo st- stuff, and there's one song that I remember seeing on MTV, and it sucks. It's just <laughs> like oh, you know, it's horrible. And he's like, it's kind of like he sounds like Morrissey, kind of. Yeah. And and who I, I'm not a fan of, and and I didn't know at that point. This was probably like '84, '85. I didn't know who the undertones were at that point. Yeah. And and then I discovered it years later. But when I watched the video, he had grown his hair like kind of long. It was a song called like a heart heart, um, something with heartbeat in the title, and it was actually a big hit. And it was just like a total like. You, you know, Europe, uh, Euro trash kind of ballad, you know? And I was just, I remember being like, oh, I hate this song when it was on MTV all the time, you know? But he had, you know, he made some money with that. And uh, John O'Neill and his brother Damien started a band called That Petrol Emotion, which actually had some hits on MTV and stuff as well, starting yeah. in 84. Uh, totally different stuff. John O'Neill in, in the 90s would do like trip hop music. Okay, in a band called Rare, so they they went in different different directions. Um, in November of '99, though, the Undertones would reform to play some concerts in Derry, but Sharky didn't join. Okay, uh, the singer Fiergal Sharky would not reunite with them, and they ended up getting a new singer called Paul McClune, and he replaced them. The band recorded two albums with this singer. Yeah. Uh, get what get what you need in 2003 and dig yourself deep in 2007. Uh, I've seen them with him. Uh, he sounds a little bit like Sharky, not exactly, but a little bit. Uh, they do the songs very well. It's not the undertones. Yeah. Okay. It's not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, if Fiergal Sharky was in the band, I would buy tickets in a second. Okay. There's just something about him, the way he sings, the style, what he brings to every song. He puts a lot of passion into every song. Uh, but he really doesn't perform anymore. He's, he's kind of like out of the business. Um, this version of The Undertones with the new singer would also release a double-sided A single in 2013 called Much yeah. Too Late. And When It Hurts, I Count to Ten. Yeah. These guys still are still touring today, but like I said, Sharky's Sharky's not with them. Yeah, they're not the undertone. They're just no. another group. Yep. So that's all I got for you. But I want to mention something. Uh, you might be <clears throat> noticing I'm wearing my Bad Brains hat. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. There was a, a death yesterday in the Bad Brains family. Um, I'm a big fan of the band. Uh, a guy named Sid McRae who was the original singer of the Bad Brains uh, before HR, which they didn't record anything with Sid. But Sid was very instrumental because when the band was called Mind Power, he was the singer. They were kind of like a funk band yeah. uh, back in the D.C. area. Uh, he was the guy that introduced them to the Sex Pistols and punk rock. And he said, you know, we should do this kind of music. And that was the, the catalyst that got them going. HR was a friend of those guys, but he wasn't singing with them at first. And once they went in a punk direction, McCray stepped aside because he thought HR would be a way better singer for what they were going to do. And it was, a, you know, a very generous move of McCray because he could have stayed on and 
probably would have been the same, okay? But he wouldn't have been as good as HR. Um, he stayed on as a roadie, and uh, he kind of uh, stepped to the side again out of the picture when they became Rastafarians. That wasn't his thing. Uh, but uh, Sid McRae is a guy that would be seen at shows. Like I said, he roadied. Uh, and he was the guy that introduced them to punk rock and made it happen in the first place. So rest in power, Mr. McRae. And um, there is a GoFundMe out there. His family has put up to try to help with the memorial. Uh, just look up Sid McRae. Uh, last name is spelled M-C-C-R-A-Y. And you'll see that his death was announced yesterday. And, and you could find the GoFundMe. So I just want to put that out there. Not bad, Mike. Not bad. Good stuff. And um, this is actually episode 89. And um, next week we got um, episode 90 of the Rock Show. What's the and, topic um, next week? Let me see. Um, I got it right here. Um, is it Lester Bangs? Is the. Uh, no, it's uh, Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye. Wow. All right. Marvin so number ninety, the it will be Marvin Gaye, which should be a pretty interesting show. That, that, that will guy. be a very interesting show. Um, you know what can I say? I mean, he's one of the greatest. And then after that is the life of a rock critic, Lester Bang, which that Lester should be Banks. a great show. Yes, you know because we interview our Duncan, so yeah, we'll Papa definitely Duncan. send him the link to that one. Yeah, so it should be a good show. So yep. um. So everybody, uh, I don't know if you've seen, if you're following us on the uh, group page, on the Rock Show uh, group page. Uh, we're trying on Facebook. We're trying to do a bunch of things to see what you guys want to do for December. Yeah, uh, what I've been doing for the last two weeks, and today's the last day to vote on the group page. Um, just check it out. It's called the Rock Show Podcast group page. Um, put a band down that you or an artist you'd like us to cover. Um, we'll talk about it. I'm trying to get a lot of votes together. Got to say, I haven't had a big turnout, but the, the loyal fans have actually been been putting stuff down. So that's cool. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen some of the stuff they're putting down. Cause I always yeah, like and, and Frank Zapp is still in the lead. So we're yeah, definitely going to yeah, be doing a Zappa show. <laughs> People have been asking for a Zappa show since the beginning. That's uh, true. We, and we kind of did like a weird kind of Zappa where we did Dr. Uh, where we did Captain Beefheart. Yeah, yeah. Zappa, Zappa came up a lot. He, he came up a lot. So um, I figure we'll probably definitely do a Zappa show in December, which wouldn't be bad because he should be up there. You know, he's one of the um, well, influence in music. Influ influential, experimental. Yeah, you, know, you definitely have to include him, I believe. People love him. Everybody always say, oh, Frank Zappa. I, I thought, personally, I thought the guy, he, I thought he was good, but to me, he was a little overrated. I just see he got a lot more and, You know, um, well, you know, a lot of his music is just not very accessible. It's not no. very easy to listen to. I like no. Captain Beefheart more. Oh, yeah, Captain okay? Beefheart was enjoyable. And because and, and, he's just so crazy, it's enjoyable. Yeah, Zappa, yeah. Zappa sometimes borderline on the annoying. Okay. Yeah. But but I think that was his thing anyway. I don't think he gave a yeah. fuck. You know, and I and, and, I, and I, I respect that kind of like DIY yeah. life that he led. You know, I mean he, he recorded, put out everything himself. So 
you know, and, and they, he has his diehards. So he's definitely a force. He's loved. He's loved. People, people love yeah. him. And I'm like, me, yeah, that, I'm, that I'm, started, I have no problem doing a show on Frank Zappa. Really there's songs that I'm like, oh, my God, can this just end? And then there's songs that are very enjoyable. But it's a lovely yeah. relationship. And some of, the songs are, some of the songs are funny, like Don't Eat the yeah. Yellow Snow. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, a great I mean, you song. Gotta, you you got to laugh, you know. <laughs> yeah, Don't Eat the Yellow Snow. <laughs> I All always right, tell man. people. I'm going to give you yellow eyes, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Mike, remember, rock a mic, don't get drunk. Drunk, get, get up. See you next week. Take care, people. Have a good one.